worship service and as individuals by baptizing. Sorry, I should have that up here, right? Um, I'm a couple slides behind. By going, by proclaiming the message of salvation, both in our worship service and as individuals, by baptizing, by identifying new believers with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Christ, and by integrating them into the church body, and by teaching, instructing believers in God's truth by accurate, exegetical, and thorough teaching of the Bible. And we saw in Matthew 28 that main command that make disciples. That's what Jesus wants us to do. And we talked about these three things, uh, the going, the proclaiming of the gospel, the baptizing, that identification, the teaching by uh, preaching the word of God, by teaching it, by instructing people in the things of God. And then the second method we talked about was equipping the saints here. And we looked at Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, uh, seeing a pastor-led church, pastors leading the church by training believers uh, in Ephesians 4.11, that talks about that uh, God gave some to be apostles, some uh, prophets, some pa- uh, evangelists, some pastor teachers. And that uh, we said that this was God's tools for making the church work, that God gave these pastors to make the church serve. And we talked about that the pastors were there to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. It's our ministry, the church's ministry. The church is the one to be doing the work that God wants the church to be doing. It's not the pastor's job to do the work. It's not the pastor to be doing the ministry. It's the church, the saints, to be doing the ministry. And then to have the people growing, that to do the work of the ministry, that we would all be edified, that we would all be built up. And the rest of that passage goes on to talk about how we're going to be mature in Christ, to be uh, Christ-like in our lives. And so that's what we see the vision of what Northridge Baptist Church is supposed to be doing, to glorify God, to exalt Jesus Christ by making disciples and by equipping believers. Um, we looked at our mission, which is our ministry aspect of North Ridge Baptist Church. That was last week. Um, and we saw four areas which we, which we were hard to do this, and these were four relational-type areas. And I talked about these as being like arrows. There's an arrow down, which is uh, uh, teaching. This is how God invests in us. Um, teaching is a focus on the study of God's word with an emphasis on who God is, what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do for us, and what God wants us to do. It's how we see God speaking to us. So it's what God's showing us, and we're, we do this through study of God's word. That we're trying to find out what God wants for us by knowing who he is, what he's done, what he will, will do, what he's doing, and what his will is for us. And that's how we focus on God. And then there's a worshiping. It's our focus on getting to know God by focusing on who he is, worshiping, focusing on recognizing God as sovereign and worthy of honor and praise. It's our response to God and his word. It's our relationship towards him. Fellowshipping. It's a focus. It's a focus on other believers. Uh, Focus on building up and encouraging other believers. And an important part of what we do is evangelizing. This is a focus on those outside of the church. Unsaved people proclaiming the salvation message to unbelievers. So four areas which we see our mission, our God's relationship towards us, our relationship towards God, our relationship towards each other as believers, and our relationship towards unbelievers. And that's the review. It's the fastest review you'll probably ever get for, from a, somebody up in the pulpit, okay? And, oh, I got one more slide for you. I'm not done yet. I guess it's not the fastest. Um, so, this overall statement, Northridge Baptist Church will seek to invest time, effort, energy, and resources in the activities which will work towards or fulfill these goals. 
Our purpose is to be strategic and effectively utilizing our resources to best accomplish what we believe God wants us to accomplish as directed by Scripture. And the idea as we put together this vision, this purpose, our mission, is that as we decide who we're going to be and what we're going to do, is that, again, I said this last week, but as we come together and we say, oh, here's an idea. We should open a food pantry. Well, then we filter through our vision, we filter through our mission and say, how does this relate to what we want to do? What does it relate to what our vision is as a church and what our goals and our mission are? Does this relate to what we want to be as a church and what our mission is? And then we look at it, and I'm not saying we should or shouldn't. I'm saying that we want to filter through and say, is this an effective use of what we want, want, think God wants us to be as a church? And then we decide based on that, so we're not just taking an idea and going, oh yeah, I like that idea, let's just do it. Or I don't like that idea, let's just not do it. We want to be purposeful in what God wants us to do so that we are effectively doing what we think God wants us to be as a church. And that's the purpose of this statement here. Do we do VBS or not? Well, does that meet our goals as a church? Do we open up the sanctuary for barn dancing? I'm just making up stuff here, okay? I'm not saying we should do or not do any of these. This is what this statement is for here, so that we can effectively evaluate what we should be or should not be as a church, okay? So key values. Key values go to our beliefs, what we believe we are as a church, what, what are our fundamental beliefs, what are our core beliefs as a church. And this is what we're going to spend time on today. What, what makes Northridge Baptist, Northridge Baptist Church as far as what we believe, who we are? Uh, and this, this will be helpful, uh, of course, in evaluating, you know, as we bring in people as pastor, what they believe. Do they believe the same things we believe? Do they acknowledge the same truth that we acknowledge? This keeps us on track as far as what we're teaching. We talked a lot about we're going to teach what the Bible teaches. Well, a lot of people say the Bible teaches this, the Bible teaches that. Do they teach the same things we teach? So these are important things to know. Um, These are important things for you to know that this is what we stand for and what we believe the Bible actually teaches. So we're going to look at three things here this morning. There's four more on our uh, statement that we created. Again, this is our third draft of this. You're seeing the third draft. Uh, There's changes that can be made. So as we're going through this, we want your comments, your questions, your thoughts, anything you think should be changed, anything you think should be added, anything you think should be removed. This is the church's document. This is not Sean's document. It's not Pastor Jim's document. This is not the deacon's document. We're working on this as a church. So we're going to work together. I'm going to take a drink quick before I start reading again. I'm going to throw this at Nathan because he said that aloud. Number one, we are fundamental. I had a professor named Dr. Myron, Dr. Myron Houghton. I don't know if any of you know Dr. Myron Houghton. He put the fun in fundamental. I don't know, I just said like that. He's that kind of professor. Um, fundamental, what does fundamental mean? It means that we ascribe to, the, ascribe to and boldly defend the basic truths of Christianity. Um, I've listed some of them here. This is probably not a complete list of what it means to be fundamental. But these are what separate us from different other groups that claim to be Christian or Christianish that don't necessarily teach these things. So I'm going to give you five things here. Again, probably not a complete list, but these are very important things here. 
Uh, so number one, the first thing, is the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does, young kids, I'm going to have you participate a little bit this morning. What does deity mean? What do we say when we mean, say the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ? Come on, you young kids. Some of you have to know this. Anybody in Thomas's class are down. Caleb? Hope's holding your paper over there. Anybody know what that means? It means that Jesus Christ is... What's that? God, good. Levi, good job. We, we would teach that Jesus Christ is God. Not that he is a God, not that he is the Son of God, but not God, that, that he is God. Uh, I think it's very clear in Scripture. Let's go to John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, how do I know that the Word is Jesus Christ? Well, I'll skip down to verse 14 of that same chapter. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, if the Word was God, and we know the Word became flesh, we know who the Word is, right? That's Jesus. Where became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you can prove that John here is talking about the word being Jesus Christ, just from the context of the passage. And you can look at the whole context there, and it's very clear that he's telling you who the word is. That's Jesus Christ, that he is God. Um, go on, John chapter 20. Jesus appears to the, his disciples, 11 or 10 of them. And they see Jesus appear after his death. And they see him, and it's a great miracle. Jesus has risen from the dead, and then he's gone again. And Thomas comes back, and the disciples are saying, We saw Jesus, and Thomas says, Look, lest I put my fingers in his hands and in his side, I'm not going to believe. And so then next, Jesus appears again. This time, Thomas is with them. And... Thomas sees him and gives this statement. It says, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And of course, Jesus says, Wait, hold on a second. Don't jump to conclusions here. I'm not God. You can't say that. No, that's not what Jesus says. Thomas says, My Lord and my God. Jesus says to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Jesus does not correct him. Jesus acknowledges, Yes, you made the right statement here. I am God. So even Jesus himself says, This is correct. You have made a true statement here, I am God. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus doesn't correct Thomas when he makes a statement. Um, going over to Hebrews 1.8, where Hebrews says, But to the Son, who's the Son? This is Jesus, right? To the Son, he says, Your throne, and the right Hebrews is talking about God the Father saying this. To the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. Why would the Father say to the Son and address him as God if he's not God? So your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil and gladness more than your companions. So even in the Old Testament, the Son is referred to as God. So we teach that the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is God. One of the fundamentals of the faith. Number two, the virgin birth. Why is this so important that we teach the virgin birth? 
Well, part of our problem, part of my problem, part of your problem, is not that necessarily that we are sinners because we have committed sins, but that we are sinners because we've inherited sin, right? We're sinners because Adam sinned. We're sinners because we are born with a sin nature. Well, if Jesus Christ is a man, how does he not have a sin nature? Well, part of it is because the sin nature is passed down from the Father. Well, Jesus, his Father, is the Holy Spirit, is God, because of the virgin birth. He bypasses the human father aspect because of the virgin birth. This is important, and it's scriptural, and it's proven. Uh, You go to Isaiah... Therefore the Lord himself give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. We see that fulfilled in Matthew 1.23. Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. So we see that this happened, that it was predicted in the Old Testament, it's fulfilled in the New Testament. Now, just so you don't get confused, if you're ever talking to a Catholic, um, they're going to try to argue with uh, the fact that Mary's the eternal virgin, virgin, that she never had any other kids. That's not biblical either. You don't have to worry about that argument, okay? So I'm just going to bring that up. Jesus was born of a virgin, but don't get confused with Catholics about that, okay? It's not important that she stays eternally a virgin, okay? So the virgin birth, that's something that Scripture teaches us that's important. Uh, third fundamental, the blood atonement. Blood atonement. The scripture tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood for our sins. Uh, there was a theory back in New Testament times, or shortly after New Testament times, that um, Jesus Christ didn't actually die on the cross, that it, he was a spirit and it didn't actually happen, that he couldn't die because uh, he was a good person. It, it, it's a weird theory, um, but we believe that he actually physically died and paid the price for our sins and shed his blood for our sins. The Bible teaches that too. Acts twenty twenty eight. 28. Uh, tells us that, therefore, take heed to yourself to all the flocks. And this is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, uh, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus Christ purchased us. He bought us with his own blood on the cross. We are his because of his shed blood, the blood atonement. Uh, In Romans 3.25 we read, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a wrath-removing sacrifice, a satisfaction uh, by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So, so Christ's blood uh, removes God's wrath. It satisfies God's wrath by his shedding of blood. Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Our justification comes by the shed blood of Christ. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood. 
our redemption, that God buying us back, God purchasing us comes through his blood. And one of my, my favorite passages, why, why, why can't we just go on sacrificing bulls and goats and lambs? Why can't we do that like the Old Testament Jews were doing? Why can't we just continue doing that? Why did Christ have to die at all? Hebrews 9 tells us, verses 12 through 14, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13, For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, the sprinkling of the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offer himself without spot of God, cleanse you, your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God? It takes the blood of the Son of God to cleanse us, to purify us, and to make us worthy to serve the living God. It's only through Christ's sacrifice, only through his shed blood, that we can have redemption. So we teach the blood atonement. Letter D, another fundamental, the bodily resurrection. We teach that Christ rose from the dead physically. It's a basis for our faith. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians, 5, 15, or 1 Corinthians 15 in a second. We're going to look at part of the passage, but the passage goes on to say if there's no resurrection, there's no hope for us. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, what hope do we have? You know, Our faith is in vain if Christ did not rise from the dead. We, we don't have any hope for anything after this life. We, we might as well just give up if Christ didn't rise from the dead. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, here. You know, we're, our faith is just foolish if Christ didn't rise from the dead. And so we teach that Christ did rise from the dead. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you by the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, which you stand. And this, this again, is a gospel. And this is one of the clearest definitions of the gospel in the, in the Bible here. By which you are also saved, that you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And it goes on to explain how uh, there's witnesses to this resurrection, that he was seen by the disciples, he was seen by the 500, and that Paul even saw him, um, the resurrected Lord. And again, like I said, and, and, and our hope, our hope for, for salvation, our future salvation, our hope for our glorification, our hope for our eternity with God is solely based on Christ's resurrection. Without the resurrection, uh, we don't have any hope in our faith. Um, in fact, I'm going to show you a verse here. Verse 14, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that God of God that He raised up Christ, and we did not raise up. In fact, if in fact are, the dead do not rise, and so you know, Paul's whole argument is that the preaching of the gospel is nothing without the resurrection. So this is very important to Christianity. This is very important to the basic beliefs of a Christian church: the, the, the resurrection of Christ. The last one I'm going to share this morning here is the literal bodily return of the Lord Jesus. Okay. My slides look different than the ones on the screen. I'm just looking at the format. I've got like three lines up there. They're all choppy. Um, so the literal bodily res- return of the Lord Jesus. 
this is very important too, that Christ is coming back, and he's coming back uh, literally. He's coming back in his bodily form. One verse, um, I think it's very clear in this verse, Acts 1, verses 10 and 11. This is right after his ascension up into heaven. Remember the disciples, uh, they just got a, a, one of the great commissions that we see in, in Acts uh, 1, 8 and 9. Christ ascends up to heaven, and then there, there's two men there in glowing robes, probably angels here. Um, verse 10 says, And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand up, gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as he saw him go up in heaven. Just as he went up, he's going to come back the same way. And so we await that return of Christ. Um, Then we're going to talk a little bit about a little more specific details a little bit later as we uh, talk about in our third point. So fundamental. We we are a fundamental church. We teach the basic core principles of Christianity. We hold fast to those things. We're not going to change that. That's who we are. We're a fundamental Baptist church. Those things are important. We're going to hold to those truths. Now, um, later on next week, we're going to talk about we're a Baptistic church, and we're going to talk about some more specific things about uh, what we believe as a church, what things, other things the Bible teaches uh, that we think are true. And so we're going to add some things to this. But here's some fundamentals that we believe in. Again, I say this might not be a, a, a full list of fundamentals, but these are some things that I think are very important here. Number two. We're evangelical. Now, this is a kind of loaded word. Um, there's a way evangelical is used that's kind of an ecumenical word that evangelical is kind of like everybody gets together and works together and we don't care about what your beliefs are. That's not how we mean it here. What we mean by evangelical, and I'm going to do this in several points here, Uh, First of all, we mean that uh, we believe in salvation by faith or belief alone in Christ's death and resurrection. So this would be opposed to, like, say, the Catholic Church, which would say salvation is by following a certain set of sacraments or rules that you have to follow. Um, This would be different than saying that there's belief and works that you have to put together. We believe that by faith alone... One is saved in faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, there's a large number of verses I could go to to show this to you in the Bible. I'm going to go to one that you probably know very well, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, through faith or through belief. And that is not of yourself. You can't do anything. There's nothing in you that saves you. It is not as a gift of God. It's not of works. You cannot do anything to earn your own salvation lest anyone should boast. So, very clear there. It's through faith, it's through belief alone who Jesus Christ is. So, salvation by faith, by belief alone in Christ's death and resurrection. Letter B, we believe that the primary purpose of the church is to share the gospel. I say this, and we talked about, like, in our, our principles, we, we believe that uh, we're to make disciples and we're to equip the saints. And so I say, well, why do you say the primary, the primary uh, 
purpose of the church is to share the gospel if you're saying that you're supposed to make disciples and equip the saints. Well, let, let me put it this way. Of all the things you do, list some things that we're supposed to do as believers. Interaction here again. Worship. Okay. Let me ask you this. As a church, where do we do better worship? Here on earth or in heaven? In heaven. Everybody agree with me? Can we do that better in heaven? Anybody disagree? Okay. Give me another thing that we should be doing as, as, as Christians, as church people. What's that? Okay, what do you mean by spreading the word of God? Okay, so sharing the gospel. Okay, just hold on that. I'm going to come back to that. Give me something else. Praying. Praying. Okay, let's, let's define praying as speaking to God. Can we do that better here on earth or in heaven? We'd probably do that better in heaven. I'm going to guess we can do that better in heaven when we have access to God directly, right? Okay, so play, play along with me here, okay? Give me something else. What's that? What's that? What's that? Okay, Let, let's say giving is, let's, let's, let's define it a little bit broader as meeting needs of others. I know there's going to be no needs in heaven, but you're going to be able to minister to others better in heaven because... Everybody's needs are going to be met. So, you're, you're seeing my point here, right? Now let's go to sharing the gospel. How hard is it, how easy is it going to be to share the gospel in heaven? It's going to be really hard because who's going to be in heaven? Everybody in heaven is going to be saved, right? So the only place where we're going to be able to share the gospel is here on earth. So this has to be a primary importance of the church that we are sharing the gospel while we have the opportunity to do it, Right? I think God wants us here. The only thing that we can do better here on earth that we can't do in heaven is share the gospel. And this is why I say this is, this is a primary purpose of the church here. We need to be getting the gospel out to people while we have the opportunity because once Christ returns or once we're dead, the opportunity is over. And certainly once unsaved people die, they're not going to have opportunity anymore to hear the gospel. That opportunity's passed. And so we need to be doing this. So we need to be an evangelical church in the sense of we need to be getting the gospel out now. Yes, John. And that, that's a real challenge because uh, you know that's that's that makes that's a logical point. If you know, and I'm I was I was talking to Scott this morning about the Packer game on Thursday night, and I I spent a couple hours watching that. And you know, if I put that much time into the Packer game and I'm not putting that time into sharing the gospel, what's more important to me? 
you know, so it's a conviction to me, and I'm saying this as a church, but as individuals too, we need to be doing that. So, um, and I'm bringing this to you for, and I'm saying that, and I said this last week too, when we were talking about that uh, fourth statement there, the um, that we ought to be uh, uh, gospel, the, preaching the gospel. I can't remember what my term was on there. Let me look at my first sheet here. My evangelizing that. You know, the first two things, I think, uh, proclaiming the gospel in our services, we're, we're good at that. If, if people wander in here, they're going to get the gospel in our service. We do that well. I think we have a lot harder time going out as a church and as individuals getting the gospel out. And I know in my life, I need to be better at that. As a church, we need to be better at doing that. And we're saying, I'm saying we need to be an even, even evangelical church we need to be better at doing that. So, so I'm saying this is who we want to be. This is who we have to be. And we need to be better at doing that. So I'm not saying we're there yet. This is stuff we have to work on. So anyway, but a good point. Very good, John. Thank you. Uh, let me go on to see here. This is going to hit kind of in the same area. We believe each believer is responsible to share the gospel with those they interact with and as God gives opportunity. Again, I've been struck, uh, as I've been reading the Bible, um, Paul oftentimes asks people to pray that he would have an open door to the gospel. That, that, and again, I told you last week, I, I like the way Paul phrases that, an open door for the gospel. I've been praying to that effect for certain people. God, give me an open door for the gospel. Um, you know, it, I, I like your story about the gas station this morning. You know, a guy asks, asks you, why are you dressed like that? that? That's an open door to the gospel. That's just, hey, I'm going to preach. Oh, now all of a you have an open door to the gospel. It's just, just you have those opportunities. Just, God, give me that open door that I can just start talking. Ted, last week, had an open door. He just said hi to a guy across the street and spent time talking to him about the gospel. It's that open door. Uh, your response is just, just those opportunities, just to take those opportunities just to speak. Is it scary? Yeah, it can be scary. Um, it, it's, I, I, I have no idea why it's scary. We have the power of God behind us, but it, it's scary at times. Fine, let it be scary. Just speak the gospel. You have the message of hope. That is a good news. Pastor Jim. Thank <laughs> you. 
Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, it's even just just getting started. It just, 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 once, so a lot of times, once I, I, I can, if I can get started, I'm good at that point. It's just getting my mouth open, getting the first words out is like the hardest thing. And once I can get the conversation going, then, then it's like it, it flows. So it's, it's just getting over that initial fear and getting, getting the first things out and like, like once, once, once you know that I'm a Christian, I'm going to tell you about the gospel. Then I'm good to go. But it's just getting over that initial fear of doing that, and uh, you know, it's that, that's that's where I maybe struggle the most. So. Yeah. So it, it's, it's just, it, but it's, it's something we have to do. It's a, it's a responsibility God gives us. It's, it's the message that we have. It's, it's uh, like I said, that first, that second point there, it's, it's the primary purpose of why we're here. If, if God wanted us to worship better, if God wanted us to talk to him better, if God wanted us to fellowship together better, he'd just save us and take us up to heaven because we can do all that better there. He's keeping us here so that we can be his ambassadors to the lost in the world. So that's what we need to be doing. The last point here, and we believe that supporting missions, and I'm going to bring up missions again because I want to get us to the point where we're doing missions. Pastor Jim wants us to, and like I said, I think we want to move very quickly on this. Not, not too quickly that we're doing it wrong, but we want to move quickly to be back to a mission-minded church and to be doing missions. But uh, we believe that supporting missions is an important task of a local church. We want to get back into that mindset. We, and I'm, I'm putting this in your mind now because um, you know, I, I want you to think about how can I be a part of this? How can I support missions? Maybe, let, let me, let me I haven't talked to the Pastor Jim about this and, or the deacons, but maybe I want you to think about is there a way that maybe I could skip a fast food meal each week, set aside $10 a week that I can give to the mission fund at church so that we can start supporting missions at the church or something along that lines. You know, how can I put aside a little bit extra money each week, put in the offering to support missions because I, I think we need to start doing this as a church is picking up missionaries again. We used to support missionaries. We stopped doing that for whatever reason and we need to start doing that again. So that's just my plug. Again, that is on... on um, Solicited from the deacons, or but yeah, I'm, I'm talking. I'm talking off uh, outside the pulpit or the authority of leadership, but I, I think I'm on good ground here. So anyway, so so evangelical. That's what we mean by evangelical. Where we want to be gospel minded. We want to see the lost saved, and not just not just in our Jerusalem here, not just in our Samaria, but but worldwide. We want to see the gospel go out. Um, and then the third one we're going to talk about this morning is dispensational. Oh, scary word, dispensational. What does that mean? Dispensational. That, it, it really affects a lot 
of how we teach. It affects a lot about how we believe. And um, we had Joel Schroeder uh, several years back teach on, in Sunday school about this. And I, I don't remember how many weeks it was, but it was between 6 and 12 weeks he taught on dispensationalism. So I'm not going to try to do it this morning. I'm going to try to do this in 10 minutes here. So I'm not going to give you the whole dispensational thing. Um, but dispensational, letter A here, we understand that God has revealed himself and his expectations of mankind in different ways at different times. And I'm going to explain this a little bit as we go through here. But Adam and Eve didn't know what we know about God and about Jesus in nearly the same way. I mean, they didn't know anything about Jesus, right? They had no idea who Jesus was. They had no idea Jesus died on the cross because they were Adam and Eve. So Adam didn't trust Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. You know, that, that didn't happen. So, so obviously there was different expectations of him. He couldn't get saved the same way we could. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Let her be here. What God revealed concerning himself and what his expectation of mankind was was different for Adam and Eve. It was different even before and after the fall for Noah, for the patriarchs, patriarchs I can't say that, Moses and the Israelites, the church, and will be in the Millennium Kingdom. Each age, there's different expectations of what God expected out of his people and what they had to believe. Again, what was the command given to Adam and Eve before the fall? You can answer. Not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They obeyed that. They were right with God. They were righteous before God if they did not eat of the one tree. We don't have that command. I don't even know what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is. That's gone. That's you know, I can't even obey that command because there is no tree. Uh, I, I'm assuming it's destroyed in the flood. It's, it's disappeared. I can't obey that command so that it has no impact on me whatsoever. My command to make myself righteous and before God is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I need to do. So you see, there's different expectations of me than there were of Adam and Eve back then. We can't do the same thing to be right before God. That means that you can't apply the same thing to me that you can apply to Adam and Eve and vice versa. Which means when you read different parts of Scripture, you have to think, well, does this apply to me? Does this not apply to me? So you have to take Scripture in context and understand that. Letter C. Though God works in different ways at different times, salvation has only and always been by grace through belief in the promise of God and ultimately based on the redemptive work of Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection. Not that each person, like I said, Adam didn't believe on Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection, but ultimately it's Christ's sacrifice that made grace possible through all the ages. But in each age it's based on God's grace through belief in whatever God's promise was at the time. And I'll show you that in a second. I'll show you that now, actually. So, Abraham. This is talking about Abraham in Genesis 15. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted to him for righteousness. 
We know this verse is about Abraham. He believed the Lord. Why do you believe in the Lord? Well, he believed when the Lord told him, you believe on Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, right? No. What did the Lord tell him? I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the skies and the sands of the, sands of the sea. Abraham believed that. That was his promise. And God accounted that for righteousness. It wasn't on Jesus. Romans 3.19 tells us, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So this is going to show that uh, the Israelites, they were given the law, but it wasn't the keeping the law that saved them. But now the righteousness apart from God from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all, not all who believe. For there is no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, the law didn't save people. It was belief all along that was saving people. The law can never save people. Going back to Abraham again. Talking about Abraham, how did he get saved? Abraham, who contrary to hope and hope believed, so he became the father of many nations. So according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. So he believed God's promise about his descendants. And not being weak in faith, in his belief, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what he, God, had promised, he was also able to perform. Abraham believed that God could give him descendants. That was what he believed in, and that's what God accounted him for righteousness. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So, righteousness is always accounted to someone by belief, but it's each age it might be a little bit different. What did they believe in? So how were the Israelites saved? They were given the law, but they couldn't keep the law. So what they would do is they would give a sacrifice, and they had to believe that the sacrifice satisfied God's wrath and that God was going to provide a greater sacrifice at some point in time. And God gave clues in the Old Testament about that the Messiah was coming. They didn't know about Jesus. They didn't know about his death on the cross. But God gave promises to them, and they were believing in that. So there, there were things along the way. It was always by belief. It was never by works that they did. It was always by God's grace through belief. Uh, Romans 4, oh, verse 23. i got one more verse here. i got two more verses. Three more verses, actually. So verse uh, 23 was on top of Abraham here. Now it's not written for his sake alone, that was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe 
and him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. So Abraham's this example to us. He believed in God's promise and was counted in for righteousness. We believe in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and that's how we become righteous before God, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification in his death and resurrection. with dispensationalism. Two main tenets of dispensationalism are you want to know what the two main tenets are? One, a literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. What does that mean? What's literal? We take the Bible for what it says. Grammatical, we take it in the form that it's written. That means if it's a narrative section, we read it as a narrative section. If it's poetry, we read it as poetry. If it's uh, prophecy, we read it as prophecy, and so on and so forth. Historical, that means we read it as history. If it's talking about history, we read it as history. Method of interpretation. What does that mean? It means we take it in its context. If God gives a promise to Israel... That promise is given to Israel. If God promises Israel land and he gives the extent of the land and he has not yet given Israel that extent of land, then we assume that God's going to keep that promise to Israel at some point in time and give Israel that extent of land. That's a promise God has actually given to Israel. You're going to have this land, and so far he hasn't done that in history, so we think that's going to happen yet. God has also promised to reign over Israel forever, and uh, he hasn't done that yet. So we think that's coming in the future. That affects our end-time view. That is, affects our eschatology. Because he's made that promise to Israel. Leads to our second tenet here. Israel and the church are separate and distinct. Anybody ever heard the term allegory? Yeah, we don't, we don't look at the Bible as allegorical. We don't look at it as there's hidden meaning in there that we go into a passage and say, well, it says this, but really it means this. We, you get funny things when you do that. Um, you end up with, well, when the Bible talks about circumcision in the Old Testament, really that's infant baptism, so we should start baptizing infants because of that. That's what a lot of Reformed churches have come to the conclusion of. Because they see the church as the new Israel, and Israel as the Old Testament church. They mix them up and combine them. We see that as distinct. It affects our eschatology. What's eschatology? Eschatology is the study of end-time things. So we see in the... Second coming of Christ, and I'm talking about the full events here. We see a pre tribulational rapture. We see Christ coming for his church, rapturing his church, and then a seven year tribulation. Because we see that there's promises to Israel that still need to be kept. And we see Israel coming to the point where they call upon the Lord to save them. Christ then returning and coming to reign over his people for a thousand years in a literal millennium, because we take a literal view of the Bible. And then Christ becoming 
the king over his people like God has promised to his people. And Jesus Christ actually reigning on the throne of his father David as God has promised in the Old Testament to his people Israel because we see these promises that are given to Israel as being given to Israel, not to the church, because they're distinct. And so dispensationalism affects a lot of what we believe. It affects how we see Scripture. It affects how we interpret Scripture. It affects a lot of this. So we're dispensational as a church. Does that make sense? It's a lot. And I'm trying to cover it in a short period of time, and there's, there's a lot more. You could take whole courses on dispensationalism and seminaries and stuff like this and spend a whole semester on it. So I'm trying to cover a lot in... 15 minutes of time. And it's, it's, a, it's a very big concept. But, but what it amounts to is that when we look at Scripture, we're going to look at it and we're going to take it in context and we're going to read it as it was written to the people, as they would understand it, as they would know it, and uh, we're going to look at passages and apply it as it would be applied, as you would normally read it, as a historical, as poetry or whatever, to the people it was written to. And we're going to interpret it in that method and build our theology out of that. And we're not going to try to say, well, this, this really means that. This really means that. And we're going to change the meanings around. So that's kind of my thought there. So those are the first three um, key values here. To be fundamental, evangelical, be dispensational. We're going to look at four more hopefully next week. Uh, if we don't get through all four next week, we might cover one the last week in our review session because I think we'll have time in the review section and still have time to do the other things. So any thoughts or questions? Again, I want to open this up for your thoughts, your questions, anything, again, any questions you have, anything you like, dislike, you think needs changed, needs to be added, needs to be changed, needs to be added. Thank you. Um, yes, Ed. Where, where is this at? Oh. Um, could I? Uh, my notes got kind of changed on me up here. I can see yours a second. Well, God promised directly to Israel may not be spiritualized, make it into promise that fits the church. Oh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about is that um, a, a lot of times uh, they'll take things that are promised to Israel and they'll say, well, this really applies to the church, and here's how it applies to the church, and they'll start to, to twist it around a little bit and make it work into the church. Uh, instead of saying that this was a promise given to Israel, we think it's still going to be fulfilled to Israel at some point in time. Usually we think that sometime in the end time events that God's going to go ahead and fulfill it in Israel. Uh, for instance, like Christ ruling over Israel, we would say that's going to happen still in the future in the end time events. Um, that's, that's what we're talking about there. But a lot of groups will say because Israel, the church is the New Testament Israel, that Christ somehow spiritually rules in our hearts, and that's how the promise was fulfilled. And so it, they'll, they'll, make, they'll make the promise something different than what it literally is. Yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot I... Forgot I um, 
my notes, but I want to save it as your notes. I forgot to save the last changes on my notes, so that's why I didn't have the A at the end. That was my mistake. I do stuff like that. I did fix the top part, yes. That made Pastor Jim happy. Every once in a while, I do something right. Not often. Any other thoughts, questions, concerns, comments? Again, by your silence. Oh, but Lynn has a question. I was just going to say I'm awesome again, but I'm not because Lynn has a. Yeah, there, there's um, there's books written, there's classes. You can, I mean, there, there's lots of resources on dispensationalism if you want to get a good handle on it. Um, it's there's really a lot of resources on it. Uh, it's it's not a majority view in Christianity, to say the least. Uh, it's we're kind of in the minority, that, and there's a lot of if you if you talk with learned people. Um, we tend to get poked fun at because we take this view. Um, so it's not, it's not the scholarly view necessarily. And they, they like to make it look like this is a brand new view, like it's, it's recent. But if you look back, it's really actually a very historical view um, when you actually do the research and, and start to see what actually people believed. Uh, it's, it's actually a very old view. But they like to pass it off as, oh, this is brand new. This is something new you guys just made up 30, 40 years ago, and it's, that's not true. Um, so you, you need to be careful if you get in arguments with people. And you shouldn't get in arguments with people anyway, but some people like to argue about this stuff. Um, so um, it, it, it's really, if you, if you really take the Bible at face value and you really read the Bible as it's written, this is the view you come up with. It's, you have to really start saying, well, the Bible doesn't say what it means to get to these other views, to some of this coming to theology type view. And that, that's a hard road to go down because then you start saying, well, this doesn't mean this. Well, what does it mean? Well, we think it means this. Well, how do you know that it means that? You don't really know what it means then. And how can you start trusting the Bible? How can you start trusting your salvation? How can you start trusting what God says when you start taking some of these other views? So this is really... The only way you can really be sure what God says is if you take this literal, grammatical, historical view and taking the Bible at what it says. So I, I, don't, I don't know how you come up with another view and really have faith in what God has given you. Honestly. That's just my thought. That's my thought. Okay. I was once told by an older pastor that when you, when you speak your opinion, you go off to the side of the pulpit. That's why I do that. I don't know if that's... Have you heard that before, Pastor Jim? Okay. I don't know if I was just making that. I remember that from years ago and this got stuck in my head, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I want on the side because I wander a lot. When I think I walk, I, I do that. I just walk around. I don't know. So, okay. So, no other arguments. I guess I, guess I am awesome. So No, I don't. I'm not. My kids will tell me I'm not. They, they put me in my place, so. Um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for this time again this morning. Uh, we thank you for uh, the ministry of your word. We thank you for 
uh, the truth that you give us. Uh, help us to, again, just uh, seek and find out who you want us to be as a church. Help us to uh, not only know, Lord, but to act as uh, the church you want us to be. Uh, Lord, I know the last few weeks we've talked a lot about uh, sharing the gospel with those that need to hear it, Lord, and we just uh, know that, uh, especially with uh, what's going on here this weekend with uh, the, the shooting and just the, the, the sin that's gone around in our neighborhood, Lord, there's people that need to hear your gospel and desperately need to hear it, Lord. Uh, we just pray that uh, you would just give us open doors to share the gospel with the people around us in this neighborhood, Lord. Uh, where the darkness is so dark, Lord, the light shines so brightly, Lord, and help us to be bearers of that light. Uh, Lord, we just uh, pray that you give uh, John and Scott safety as they travel this afternoon, and we uh, thank you for their ministry here this morning. Uh, we just pray that you help us to be your servants as we go from here. May we give glory and honor to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.